Our Father, we do rejoice in that truth that we sing that we are in Christ, and in Christ we have our confidence, our confidence that our sin is forgiven, our confidence that our future is secure, our confidence that we have even now a present intercessor and mediator for us, and we have a king whom we delight to serve And we thank you for accomplishing all of this for us. Now, as we open your word, your living word, your living and active word together, would you, Holy Spirit, be our teacher? Would you show us Christ? Would you give us wisdom? Would you lead us in truth and paths of righteousness for your name's sake? To this end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can open up your Bibles, if you will, one, well, actually... One in the next week will be the last time, but to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. Just to, we are taking a break by looking at the Gospel of Matthew and particularly 18 and the issue of church discipline. So let me just give you a, a big idea of where we're going. We're going to have uh, this week and next week, and then we'll wrap up our look um, at the issue of church discipline. And then for two weeks, Tim Malvaso, Pastor Malvaso, is going to take us back to the book of Genesis and to the life of Joseph. And then coming back, following that, we will uh, look again at the seven churches and we'll come back to the church at Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, beginning chapter 3. So that's where we're headed over the next uh, few weeks, uh, just so you are aware. But we are considering again the issue of church discipline, the issue of church discipline and for those who um, are just joining us this morning, we're looking at the issue of church discipline because this is at the very heart of Christ's messages to the church, the seven churches, the ones that we've looked at already where it's been right at the forefront is the church at Pergamum and the church of Thyatira. Christ is essentially in his messages addressing the sin in the churches and their need to themselves of what they should have been doing was policing sound doctrine and holiness of life. But since they weren't doing it, he does it from heaven through the messages to the angels to the churches and so we're considering then what is our responsibility as the body of Christ and the church of Christ in terms of pursuing holiness together well there's no place that that's laid out more clearly for us although it is throughout all of the New Testament and the Old Testament for that matter than in Christ's instructions in Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 20. Now, we've considered briefly just some preemptory matters, some we call it the prolegomena, introductory matters, those things that just bring us into the big context of Matthew 18. We began last week by looking at the process of church discipline, namely where Christ begins in verse 15 at private confrontation, at private confrontation. And we noticed there that we are to identify sin or when sin is identified, that we are to go to that sinning brother or sister and to address the sin. Uh, therein comes a question, what kind of sin are we to address? And we know that we're not the sin police. It's not every little infraction, every little transgression against God. That's a pretty miserable environment. That's where legalism leads people often. But we gave three guidelines or suggested three guidelines of the kind of sin that we are to confront. One is sin that is habitual. Sin that is habitual when it's a consistent pattern in a person's life. We are to confront sin that hinders fellowship where there's a 
break in relationship, those things that cause factions or divisions within the church. We are to confront that kind of sin, and we are to confront the sin of false teaching. And we noted that it's not false teaching everywhere where we disagree with doctrine, but those fundamental aspects of the gospel that lead one astray into error, those things that attack the nature of God, the nature of salvation, and so forth. Those things are to be addressed. It is not to be tolerated among the body of Christ. And the goal of that, of course, is the glory of Christ, pursuing holiness together, and the good of his people. And we think we ended with that, the fact that God wants to do good to his people. He wants to bless his people. He wants his people to be rich and flourishing in all of the spiritual blessings of the gospel. But sin and God's blessing are at odds with each other. And so as we pursue holiness, we're pursuing as well God's blessing and goodness in our life and one another's life. Well, that takes us then as we continue this look then at private conversation uh, to the fact that we need to initiate contact. We need to initiate contact. So if, if we are to confront sin, it means we actually have to confront sin. We actually have to go to that sinning brother or sister. And so he says in verse 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And so there it is. It means that we have to actually take the initiative. We have to take the initiative to go to this person. And I would note first on this that this is a command. Jesus does not leave the door open to not go. He commands us to go. It's a matter of our Lord telling us what to do, not to go to someone when we are convinced that going to them would be helpful to them in their spiritual life and helpful to the witness and the spiritual life of the church. To not go to them is actually sin. It's disobedience to the Lord. This is a command. We must take the initiative, not wait and see if that person comes to it on their own. We must go to them. Secondly, when we go, we must go to them with the intention to reprove them or show them their fault. The basic idea of the term here is the exposure of something wrong, a transgression, in this case a sin, for the purpose of offering correction. For the purpose of offering correction or correcting the one who has gone astray. Just to give you an idea of this, some other ways this term is translated in Luke 3.19, speaking of John the Baptist, uh, whose confrontation of Herod, he says that he reprimanded him. He reprimanded him. There's a sense of rebuke uh, behind that word. Uh, John, uh, Jesus uses this or in John 3.20 when he talks about that the light exposes sin. This, uh, he says the light, in, in the light someone's sin is exposed, making it known, revealing it. Uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.2, using this word, that the ministry of the word of the proclamation of the word is to include reproving, reproving the sin within the body of Christ. And so those, all of those are the idea here. Capturing that essential idea is that it is to address wrong with the purpose of correcting, for the purpose of bringing the sinning member to repentance and to the path of obedience. Now, that being said, here's a reality that we all know and that we all maybe have faced in our own life, we don't often go. We don't often go. Even with urging, even with the command, one of the areas of neglect that is so common, and and all of us have some, probably, some uh, example of this in our own lives or in our own experience, is that people do not go to one another. We don't go very often uh, when we should. And so the question is, why? 
Why do we not do this? Why do we not fulfill this command of the Lord? Well, let me suggest to you four primary reasons, four primary reasons that we don't go to one another. And I can tell you, uh, this happens all the time, just uh, within body life. Uh, it's not uncommon that somebody will bring, a com- uh, it's not super common, <laughs> but it has happened in the history of uh, my Christian life, that somebody comes and they're, they're complaining or they have something uh, against another person. And sometimes if somebody's in the position of an elder or maybe even a, a deacon or certainly in a pastoral position, it's like, well, you need to go address this. What is the first thing you say to that person? Did you go to them? Did you go to them? Have you spoken to them? Have, have you made any of this known to them? Have, have you gone to them privately? And very often the answer is no. And as soon as you say something along the lines, well, I'm not getting involved with this until you go. That's your responsibility. You need to go to this person. Well, that usually ends and, and very often nobody ever goes. Why? Why don't we? Well, let me suggest to you four reasons. One is a weak grasp of holiness. A weak grasp of holiness. It's simply not seeing holiness and therefore sin as that significant of an issue. Now this maybe doesn't apply as much to us in our immediate context, but if we were to expand out into the larger church scene, uh, this certainly is the case if there are church congregations that are focused primarily on growth and numbers. You're not going to confront sin if your main focus is to get as many people as you can in the pew. Church growth, who actually designs the services to get unbelievers in the pew, is certainly not going to make a big deal out of holiness and addressing sin. And so if that's the primary measure of effectiveness of a body is how it grows in numbers, not in holiness and the knowledge of God and a hunger for Scripture, well, this isn't going to be taking place very often, is it? A second reason uh, or context in which this grasp of holiness is weakened is when there's an imbalanced understanding of the gospel, where the gospel is presented primarily, in some cases almost exclusively, as love, as love, without any sense of justice or any sense of holiness, or if justice or holiness are there, there are footnotes to the gospel. There are little side things that we can easily forget and just focus on how we accept one another but not address sin in each other's life. So if the only message that is coming in a particular congregation almost exclusively is God's love for you and desire for your success, your happiness, or that he might be that ever-present help in your life, but not calling you to die to yourself and to grow in holiness and to walk in the truth, well, and obedient faith, well, then this isn't going to be happening very much. And this leads to a second reason. So one is that there's a weak grasp of holiness. But a second reason, and some of these are going to get a little bit closer to where we live here, and that is that there's a false understanding of love, a false understanding of what love actually is, biblically, and with the, in the gospel. Now, we've already mentioned this idea earlier on in the first message by noting that going to someone uh, in sin and, and helping the, uh, them see that sin and addressing that sin is actually a commanded expression of love. So 1 Corinthians 13, 6, he says this, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but can you finish it? Rejoices in the truth, right? It rejoices in the truth, which is to say not merely truth as in uh, right and wrong factually, but rejoices in all of those things that conform to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, the character of what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is holy. Love actually rejoices in the truth, not in unrighteousness. But let's take this a little further and consider how this can be derailed in the church. 
And I would note this, first of all, why is it like that? And where does this, this thinking come from? One, well, from our culture, which is, of course, not always outside the church, but very often seeps its way inside the church, too, doesn't it? The culture. And what does the culture have as its primary definition of love very often? And that is of sentimentality. Sentimentality, feelings. Love is primarily a feeling of love. It's a feeling of love that I feel loving towards that person. I feel sentimental towards that person. I feel in some way gushy about that person. And this leads to then the idea that in order to be loving is we always have to be nice and likable. Nice and likable. That's the very heart of what loving is in in many contexts. Now, we should be nice and likable. <laughs> a Christian shouldn't be a jerk, right? They shouldn't be the one who nobody wants to be around because they're always kind of obnoxious, right? That would be bad. That would not be good. We should be likable. People should like you because you're kind and you're gentle and so on and so forth. And you take a genuine interest in people. So we should be that. But if we define that as the essence of love, it's a very superficial view of love. It's a very superficial and empty view. It's the kind of view that sees the greatest burden of our testimony as being likable rather than being holy, of being likable rather than being holy and true. And it tends to lead to an accepting of wrong or sinful behaviors to be the measure of how loving we are. That's what Paul, if you'll remember, rebuked the church in Corinth for in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. They thought they were being loving and accepting, and Paul says, no, you're being arrogant, actually. You're being arrogant, and primarily that arrogance is shown as you're putting your ideas above God's holiness and God's glory among the church. And so don't do that. If you're not going to deal with it, Paul said, then I will. And this comes out, again, uh, our behavior is a reflection of our thoughts of God. That applies in every area of life. But that then comes to the thought of God that sees his love as simply benevolent toleration, It limits his love to his benevolence, to his toleration, to his long-suffering. Those are glorious aspects of love, but they are not all of it. We cannot divorce God's love from the rest of his nature. Now, a fancy theological term that some of you will know is the simplicity of God. And that simply says that God isn't made up of a bunch of parts, and you take all of these attributes and your parts, and you put them together, and there you have God. So you have this part of God that's justice, and this part of God that's holiness, and this part of God that's truth, and whatever. It is simply to say that God is holy. He is. He is simple. He's not divided up in his being. He is merely holy. That is behind, for example, just as a a footnote to there, while James could say if you break one commandment, you're guilty of the whole thing. Why? Because God is all of them. They're all expression of his holy nature. And so we can't, the problem is sometimes is when we tend to emphasize one attribute of God as opposed to the all of who God is and the fullness of who God is. And that most commonly is love because we're all pretty comfortable with love, not so comfortable with holiness. We all are very warmed by the idea of God's acceptance and long-suffering, but not so much by judgment and the call to repentance. But they're both true, and both need to be presented. It's the whole counsel of God. As a matter of fact, one captured this well, D.A. Carson, in a great little book I would suggest to you. It's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And in it, he says this, The love of God in our culture has been purged of anything the culture finds uncomfortable. The love of God has been sanitized, democratized, and above all, sentimentalized. Lized. I put an extra T in there. Sorry. Nowadays, if you tell people that God loves them, they are unlikely to be surprised. Of course God loves me. He's like that, isn't he? Besides, why shouldn't he love me? I'm kind of cute. Or at least 
as nice as the next person. I'm okay, you're okay, he loves me, he loves you. Yeah, that's just who God is. Of course he loves us. However, God's love does not minimize sin and sinfulness as that attitude does or its consequences, but in fact magnifies it. And this is the importance of keeping the understanding of God's love in balance and connection with all of who God has revealed himself to be. Let me quote one more time from that little work. He says this later on, Wrath, unlike love, is not one of the intrinsic perfections of God. Rather, it is a function of God's holiness against sin. Where there is no sin, there is no wrath. But there will always be love in God. Where God in his holiness confronts his image bearers and their rebellion, there must be wrath. The price of diluting God's wrath is diminishing God's holiness. And I would add to that, which is in the overall point of his book, which is to diminish God's love. It is to diminish God's love. God's love is connected to his justice. God's love is connected to his holiness. God's love is actually connected to his wrath because what God loves above all else is holiness. It is the most beautiful and highest perfection which is found in God and everything that is not God and stands in contrast to God is actually damnable, is hurtful, is destructive and God will destroy it. And so when we understand the nature of God, then we will understand the nature of love rightly when we understand the fullness of the nature of God. And that then takes us immediately to the cross. And this isn't so much of a side note as much as to say we have to understand the gospel to live as the people of God and to understand the Lord's instructions here. Let me give you just one passage. There's, of course, so many we could go to. But in Romans chapter 5, he says this. And let me just read to you verse 6. For while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will hardly die for the righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So to be saved is to be rescued from the wrath of God. It is to be taken from a condition of judgment into a condition of forgiveness and salvation. And as he'll move on to after he explains that even more by showing the first Adam and the second Adam Christ and the freedom that we have, he will talk about that we then live out the implications and reality of being in union with Christ, which is to say that sin shall not reign in God's people. Not saying it's not present, that's Matthew 18. It doesn't reign, it doesn't have dominion, it is not the defining reality of God's people. And so love then takes a concern for realizing sin as it truly is, that which God had to remedy through nothing less than the death of his son on the cross to avert his wrath from us in an act of propitiation so that he might instead show us grace. When we love someone and we understand the gospel in all of its fullness, it's also loving to confront sin because we believe the warnings of Christ that says, unless you persevere in these things. It is because we believe the warnings of Christ in Matthew 7, 21, when he says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, on that day, didn't we do these things? And I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Now, if we were to take that back and can put it into the theme of this message, then we would understand that means there is a church environment where a lot of activity was praised and honored, but not holiness. 
It was allowed to fester. Unbelief, wrong views of Christ, sin. And he says they're going to go happily through life confessing Christ and unregenerate and be forever separated from him whom they expected to be, receive them into his presence forever. And so these things are very serious. And it takes an understanding of the gospel and all of its implications to realize it's very important that we take these things serious in one another's lives. I've mentioned it before, but Hebrews 3, he says, be careful that there's not an unbelieving heart in any of you and that we encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. And in chapter 3, he says, and so we see that no one is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And it takes one another. It takes the body to help each other in that. There's a sense of protection. There's a, a sense of uh, encouragement in knowing that we are among a body that will take our future and our salvation seriously and help us along if there's something that's questionable. So we must understand the gospel. And the gospel is this, also out of the book of Hebrews chapter 12, is he says, without holiness, without sanctification, no one will see the Lord. No one will see the Lord. And so this becomes very weighty then, that we take the Lord's commands seriously here. And so that comes from a right understanding of God's love in Christ and of the gospel that says sin is serious. It required the death of the Son. And the gospel love is serious because the love of God does not merely rescue us from the penalty of sin, and, but from the power of sin. And that is necessary to see in a person's life in order for them to be assured of their salvation. But I would add one other thing, too, of how it's an expression of love to address sin and error in one another's life when it's necessary. Because we understand this, that when we don't sentimentalize love, but we, love that we understand that love is attached to obedience and holiness, then it says we work for one another's joy and happiness when we help one another walk in obedience to Christ. Sin brings God's discipline. Sin brings God's misery or the misery from God as he convicts us it doesn't bring his blessing listen to the words of Christ in John 15 after the great section or concluding that little great section there about abiding in Christ he says this in verse 10 if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love he's not saying that you're gonna stay saved he's saying that you will continue to prove to be my disciples as he said before that and in that confidence of being my disciple you will experience my love you will experience the love of the father you will relish in it you will come to know it at ever deeper levels he says, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. There's a direct connection between obedience and joy, between confidence of salvation through uh, obedient life and experiencing the love of God. And so we understand that. Obedience is the path to joy. Sin is the path of, to misery or even worse, deception. That's why love drives a parent to deal with sin in their child's life. It's easy to let sin go. That's the easiest thing. Discipline as a parent is very hard. It's tiring. It's exhausting work sometimes. And love is what then motivates a Christian to go to a Christian. Love cares enough to put yourself at risk for their good and God's glory. That leads us to another, a third. So first is there's a weak understanding of holiness is often why we don't go. Secondly is there's a distortion of the love of God that eviscerates it of the holiness of God and the attachment of obedience to blessing and perseverance in the gospel and in Christ. Thirdly, it is a wrong understanding of judging. A wrong understanding of judging. You know, it's popular in our culture, uh, kind of as a flippant thing, you know, don't judge me. Don't judge me if you go by what gym is it? Is it 24-hour fitness or the no judgment zone? 
Is, right? I, I, which one? Uh, which one? Oh, well, whichever one that is. But it's the judgment-free zone. I don't remember. I thought it was 24 hours. But it's the judgment-free zone, right? You can go in here, nobody's judging you. And, and I admit that sometimes that can be, you know, said in a, a jokeful way, and it is, you know, don't judge me. But it is a very serious issue. It is a very serious issue, and that flows from a wrong understanding of God's instruction on it. Now, the key text there, of course, is Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And again, we're just going to briefly, briefly look at it. But consider it. He says this, verse seven, chapter 7, verse 1, ending the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you into pieces. And so that has been in the the typical pattern of bad interpretation by many in the popular church says, well, that means that we don't judge one another. We never confront one another. We don't point out another person's sin. That's judging. That's condemning that person. And that's what Christ forbid. Usually when people say this verse, however, in that way or use it in that way, what they're really saying behind that is, who are you to judge me? Or I just don't want to judge anyone because I don't want to be judged. I don't want anyone to confront me on sin or error because you don't, if you don't confront me, then I won't confront you and we'll all be fine, just happy living our lives. No one is confronting anybody, right? That's how it often goes. However, the judging that Christ forbids here and the command to confront sin are not synonymous and contradictory. They're not synonymous and they're not contradictory. He says here, do not judge. What does he mean by that? Well, he can't be forbidding making any discernment of error or going to one another. Otherwise, he would be contradicting himself and the very description in verse 6 wouldn't make any sense. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Guess what? You have to make a discerning decision there. Who's a dog? What is holy? What do you not give them? And so we are to judge, and clearly that would contradict his, his teaching and his command in Matthew 18 and throughout, of course, all of Scripture. Look at what he actually says. What he actually says is, first, deal with the log in your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In fact, Jesus is not forbidding that we, do, that we judge one another. He's giving instructions on how we're to judge one another properly. He's giving instructions on how to judge one another properly by warning against a evil way of doing that and then instructing us on the righteous way to do that. What is the evil way to do that? Well, it has to do with one's attitude. He's forbidding self-righteousness and a judgmental attitude. Essentially, he's saying if you're not pursuing purity in your own life, you have no business pursuing purity in another person's life. You first have to be pursuing holiness in your life, and then you're someone who's set to help someone else along that same endeavor and in that same path. Well, then here's a question. How do you know whether you're being judgmental? How do you know whether you're being judgmental? Well, I would suggest to you that there's only one way to tell. There's one red flag that goes up in our mind when we say, okay, we've crossed the line between obeying God's command for love and stepped over into self-righteousness, and that is... By our attitude. It's by our attitude and our perspective. That's how we know we should pay attention to what's going on in our inner man. 
And so what is the attitude? Well, let's look again and consider this. The comparison between the log and the splinter is meant to emphasize this one point. Whose sin do you see is greater? That's the simple point. Whose sin do you see is greater? Are you more offended by somebody else's sin than you are by your humbled by your own sin before God? Are you more humbled by your own sin before God and less offended by theirs? That's the issue. That's the issue. So what is a mark of whether we've got that wrong? One mark is this, of whether the person that we see sinning and that we need to go to, whether we view them with contempt, whether we look down on them. Isn't that exactly what Jesus dealt with in Luke chapter 18 when he told that parable? Those who were righteous in their own eyes, and he says what? They looked at others with contempt. And then he gives the example of a, of a leader of the church, a Pharisee who went into the temple and he's thanking God for all of the good things that God has given him and God has made him as this upright and righteous Jew. And then he looks with disdain and contempt over the tax gatherer, the one who was unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven. But Jesus said, I tell you, the tax gatherer went home justified rather than the other. In other words, one was on the path to heaven and the other was on the path to hell. And so it's, Important, then, that we understand the attitude of our heart when we go to one another. Are we going with this inner thought within ourselves that we are somehow above them or above that sin? And we're looking at them with contempt. Well, if we are, then we realize that we are sinning. We are transgressing the attitude that we need to have when we go to them. Uh, another mark is this, is if our attitude lacks mercy. If it lacks mercy, if we go with a harshness uh, to that other person, then we realize we're judging at that point and we are sinning. Jesus said this to the Pharisees. He says, you tithe, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters, the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Micah, I think it's 6.8. It said, what does God require of you but to walk humbly with your God, to love justice and to love mercy? Those are the things that should mark so we would ask ourselves then, when we go to someone, checking our own attitude, are we looking down on them? Are we viewing them as beneath us? Are we viewing them as a less spiritual person than us? Are we viewing them as someone who is underneath us in the stratosphere of rank in God's kingdom, which is itself uh, not true, right? Who serves as the greatest among you? Or are we going with an attitude of harshness? Are we more excited about pointing out their sin for some reason? Are we going with a sense of hardness toward them? Or are we going with a sense of mercy, compassion? So all of this said that Jesus is addressing how we confront sin, not that we never confront sin. We are to judge one another. We are to go to one another. But we are to make sure that we're doing it with the right heart. I'll mention that again later just briefly. But let me go to a fourth reason. A fourth reason we don't go, uh, and that is a fear of man and a love of self. And that really goes with the issue of judging. Sometimes we don't go because we fear men and we really, we really love ourselves. We really want to kind of want to protect ourselves. And this is huge. We all feel it at some level, right? We all live in the same world and with the same flesh. And sometimes we simply fear man. Proverbs 29 says, do not fear man. It brings a snare, it brings a snare in terms of our lack of obedience to God, and it leads us to do foolish things. Simply stated, we don't confront sin sometimes because we don't want someone else to think less of us, to misunderstand us, or in any way lose their good opinion of us. Is that not true? Have not all of us at some point felt that in our hearts? 
We don't want someone else to think ill of us or in any way to think less of us. And so it's easier just not to go when we know that we probably should. And this may be the most powerful reason that we don't go to one another. It may be that when we don't go, it's because the, their opinion holds greater weight in our heart than the good of their soul and the good of, and the glory of Christ. And so we don't go. We don't want to be accused of being unloving, of being judgmental, of being hypocritical. Again, we don't want to be not liked or misunderstood. The problem with each of these reasons is what is at the center of them? Or who? Self, right? Self is at the center of them. What are they going to think of me? What is their response to me going to be? What is their attitude towards me going to be? What is this going to cost me in terms of discomfort and vulnerability and those kind of things? And so we're starting from the wrong vantage point when, we were, when that is what's controlling us. The problem with each one of these is they're concerned with self, not Christ or the other person. And the reality is we cannot be faithful to Christ and be concerned with ourselves and other people's opinion of us at the same time. We simply can't. Those two things cancel each other out. Listen to the words of Paul. Now understand this, in, Paul, in Galatians, Paul is writing to a church he loved to a people that he loved, to a people that he came and he, and he gave of himself and he served them and he's writing to them, but he writes to them a strong rebuke because he saw that where they were going in Galatia, the church, they were adopting false teaching and it was damning to them. He'll say later at the end of the epistle, if you're circumcised, you follow this false teaching, Christ is of no benefit to you. You've been severed from Christ. So he says the stakes are high. What they're bringing to you is another gospel and this other gospel is very serious. It's not a tradition, it's not a version, it's not another option, it's not a different way of looking at things, it's a damning truth. And he says, I need to address this, and he does with the utmost seriousness. And then he says this, after beginning this letter with that very serious exposure of this wrong doctrine, and he says, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? Listen, if I were still striving to, striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant or a slave of Christ. You can't do both. I can't be an apostle and walk into the church and go, ooh, are they going to like me? What are they going to think of me? What if I say this particular thing that might offend somebody and then they'll think I'm a mean person or judgmental? Christ says, well, you can't be faithful to Christ and have that attitude. You, just, you simply can't. He says something very similar in the, uh, to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.4. He says this, just as we have been approved by God, and again, this is a church he loved. He says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, listen, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. God who examines our hearts. So when we go and then we apply that principle to the issue of church discipline, it means we have to have something greater than their opinion of us driving us, namely the good of their soul and the glory of Christ. That we say this is important. This is hard. It's hard. I, they may take this wrongly. They may view me wrongly, but I have prayed about this. I have thought about this, maybe even received counsel of whether I should go to this person. And I know that it's the right thing to do. I know that I might lose a friendship. I know that I might lose an opportunity. I know that I might certainly lose their good opinion of me, but it's necessary. And I fear God rather than men. So those are reasons that we don't go that we need to recognize in our heart that we fear man, that we have a wrong view of love, that we have a weak view of holiness, or we have a wrong understanding of judging. But all of those are, are bad reasons. 
So Jesus informs us then that, look, we need to go. When we see sin, go to a sinning brother. And then he tells us how to do it, the manner of confrontation. So when you have the right goal and you have the right understanding of what you're doing and you've checked your heart and as best as you can tell, you have the right heart in going to that person, then we need to go. And he says this, you go to them privately. You go to them privately first and foremost. If your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Go to him privately. Actually, more literally, which more accurate if you're a literal would be the ESV or the LSB that says, go between you and him alone. Between you and him alone. Now, why does he say this? Why is it important that we go privately to this sinning brother and sister? Well, let me just give you a few suggestions of why that's important. Uh, One is this, not to embarrass them and to protect their dignity. Not to embarrass them. The goal isn't to embarrass them or to make them look smaller in any way. It actually love says, I want to protect you. I want to protect your appearance before others. I want to show you dignity and come privately and tell you. Another reason is that it may help the person feel more comfortable. We all know that if we're rebuked publicly, what are we going to be more likely to do? Be defensive. We're going to be more likely to be defensive and try to put ourselves in a good light. It's going to be harder if there's many people around. And so it helps if we go privately that somebody can be more honest when it's just you and them together. They can be more open to receiving what you have to say to them and not have that greater temptation to self-defense. So he says, go to them privately. Go to them privately. It shows them honor. It shows them dignity. It provides an environment where this can be dealt with uh, more honestly between the two of you. But that being said, I do have to make one footnote here is that sometimes there are sins that call for a public rebuke. And I don't even mean the sins necessarily that he's going to talk about at the end that we'll look at very briefly next week where we do take it to the church or we take witnesses. I mean, there are just certain sins that call for a public rebuke. Let me just mention a couple of them to you. One is in 1 Timothy chapter 5. There are there, he says... In verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. And that he gives so that he can hinder gossip or vindictiveness or other ill motives. He says, but if there are, it is affirmed, it is clear that there was a sin committed by a leader that needs to be uh, addressed. He says this, uh, 20, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful. Now, those who continue in sin, there is the idea that they did go to them privately, but then that rebuke needs to be public. It needs to be public so that others will be taught not to sin and to know that God takes sin seriously even and especially in the leaders of the church who are to be above reproach. Uh, We see an example of this again in the same epistle of Galatians. When Paul was addressing the, the false gospel that came in, he, he was, Cephas came in there, Peter was there, he had come down, and you know the account that Peter was there, and then some of these, these false teachers were Judaizers. They were coming in saying, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah, you have to believe in him, he is the, the promise of God. Oh, but by the way, God hasn't abrogated the Old Testament completely. There is still aspects of the Old Testament law and of Moses that need to be observed in order for the, the uh, the demonstration of true faith. For them, the primary thing was circumcision. There still needs to be circumcision. 
Well, Peter came down, and he's in this Gentile church of Galatia, and he came down as the representative of the gospel, and, well, he began to feel a little pressure, and he began to compromise, not on the gospel, but on the way it was working out in his life. And Paul has to rebuke him and say, look, what Peter was doing is he was failing to associate with the Gentiles as much because this was being looked down upon by these Jews who had come. And so Paul says, we can't have this. We can't have this. The stakes are too high to allow this to go. And so we have this amazing account where Paul publicly rebukes Peter in a gracious way, but a very direct and a clear way. And he says in verse 11 of Galatians 2, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So the the importance of Peter's position, the public nature of his compromise required Paul to meet it on those terms and so he had to publicly address it before all because the gospel was at stake. The salvation of the church, of those in Galatia were at stake and so he did it publicly. So there are times for that and we see examples of this too. We've looked at some of them. I'm just gonna mention it here is where Paul calls out specific names in his epistles. He calls out specific names. Why? Because there's, there was need. These were people who were wielding influence, who were teaching things they ought not to teach, who were dis, uh, causing people to doubt and be confused in their faith. And so Paul had to call them out by name. It was necessary. So there are times for severe rebuke. There are times for a public acknowledgement of sin. But the, the reality is that most of what goes on is privately. It is going to one another privately, uh, person to person, and addressing sin. And the reality is, thankfully, most of it takes place at that level. Most of it takes place at that level. That, that is the norm of body life. And I had mentioned before that this is called church discipline, but one of the problems with that is we kind of over-formalize it. And, but in reality, he's just talking about body life, how we live to one another as Christians. This kind of thing happens all the time. And it's a part of what church discipline is, which, remember, is just the church holding itself accountable to the standards of God, to the standards of Christ, and to holiness. But sometimes there is, there is the need to make it more public. Now... We touched on this earlier in relation to judging, but I want to come to this point again. How are we to confront sin? We mentioned it, but let me give you one other passage that brings this out. Uh, First of all, let me give you two, two basic principles. One, with humility, 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 and then humility. Yes, humility. Humility before God and before the gospel. We are not ready to confront sin in another until we have a robust view of our own sin and our own need of grace. Then we're ready to do that. Uh, Let me give you one passage that makes this clear. In Galatians chapter 6, he says this, Brethren, and this is right after he gave this great example of uh, what it means to walk in the Spirit and bear the fruit of the Spirit and, and all of these wonderful attributes and characteristics of those whose lives are under the control of the Holy Spirit, walking in obedience, that there's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, and all those things. And then he says this in chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And then look what he says. Looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. If you go into any kind of sin and think that you are above that sin, that's where the danger is. He says, no, realize that you have the same principle of sin in you. And you may not be caught in that exact sin now, but it doesn't mean you can't be. Or you may not be caught in that exact sin, but it doesn't mean you don't have other areas of temptation in your life. 
that you're having to watch out for or that you failed in. And so he says, be careful. But when you go, that you need to go again, you need to go. If anyone's caught, you are spiritual, restore such a one. You need to point it out. You need to, you need to address it, but you need to do so with gentleness. And this follows, of course, the same pattern of Matthew. We go, we go in humility, dealing with our own sin first, walking in the spirit, and we are to go with the intention of restoration, and we are to go ready to help in the process of walking in righteousness. Look what he says in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Bear one another's burdens. It has a lot of applications. But here it means this, that we don't just drop in, point out the sin, and then take off. It means we are invested in one another's lives. We have a responsibility to each other's lives. That means that when you go to one and one is caught in a trespass, it may take time and work to help them to put on righteousness. And we have to be willing to do that. We walk next to them. We realize that change doesn't always come overnight. Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes it takes time of going to them to help them even realize the reality of the sin they've committed. And it says we bear that burden. We take it upon ourselves. We don't just drop in, say, you're a sinner, look at what you did, and then leave. That's not helpful. He says we bear one another's burdens. We do it with gentleness. We realize that sin affects the whole body. And by restoring that sinning brother and sister is actually a benefit to all of us. It actually increases the joy of the whole church. It actually increases the glory of Christ and his people for the whole church. That we're all in this together. Our lives are invested in one another. And so we must be willing as we go as well to bear one another's burdens and to do so with gentleness. On the issue of gentleness, listen to this. As a model of confrontation, Jonathan Edwards, uh, some of you all are familiar with, actually when he was relatively young, now these were actually written over a period of time, they weren't all written in one night when he went home and was inspired, uh, but he wrote his resolutions, and these are things that, that he wrote as a young man, beginning as a young man, that he wanted to direct his life, that's resolution, he was resolute to follow these things, and one of them, number eight, says this, he says, resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and to let the knowledge of their failing promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my, own, of my confessing my own sins and misery before God. Now imagine if that was the attitude that we went to one another. What a tremendous difference that would make, and that's exactly the kind of attitude that Paul is talking about. And that scripture is talking about, that Jesus was in, in the gospel of Matthew 7, and that Paul's talking about in Galatians 6, and again throughout scripture. That we go to them with humility. Imagine, imagine if that characterized our interaction. Well, first of all, we go with humility. Secondly, then, what is the attitude with patience and love and hope? And again, this is just filling out what was implied in Matthew chapter 7. We go with patience and love and hope. Patient means we bear with that person. It means we give them time for the Holy Spirit to work in their life. We give them time. We realize this is a process. It's ongoing. We do want to, you do want to see and hold them to the need to be applying themselves to process or to progress, but that it takes time. 
And so we have patience. He says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love hopes all things. That means when we go, we are to go and love and we are to have an attitude of hope. This is not a naive or superficial assessment of the sin. It means that we go expecting the best outcome or at least hoping for the best outcome. We persevere because we want God to work and we expect him to work in that person's life. We're not quick to dismiss, dismiss them or write them off or give them up when we don't see immediate results. And I would say, aren't we glad that God doesn't treat us that way? I think uh, he is very patient with us. And love believes all things. It, we believe that they really do want to honor Christ, that the Spirit of God is working on in their life. We assume that the real possibility of change, because those are truths, that even if not ultimate, or immediately, ultimately, that there will be change. We're believing, the, we're hoping the best, and we're believing that God is working in this situation. And so then that's how we go. Now, uh, let me point out one other thing, and this will be our last point before we come to the table. Um, we've been assuming uh, all along here uh, are going to someone else, right? That we see somebody caught in a trespass. We who are spiritual see somebody go caught in a trespass, and we're going to correct them, right? It's a lot easier to correct when you're in a position of superiority, Right? You can lower yourself down. Uh, but there's another side of it, isn't there? What, what about when we're receiving the correction? What about when somebody comes to us and points out something in our lives that maybe we are blind to or that we have done? So how should we then receive correction? Well, let me give just a couple of guidelines here. You could probably guess the first one. It starts with an H. With humility, with humility, right? So we've been talking about that with Edwards that we understand that there's sin. You don't know half the sin in my life or any of us of one another, right? God sees our hearts. And then we don't even see our hearts well. So we realize that we are sinners and that we have an amazing capacity to rationalize sin and to cover it up and to be bothered by somebody else's transgressions more so than ours. And so we have humility, and let me suggest this, how we respond to someone who gives us correction reveals the condition of our heart, doesn't it? It reveals the condition of our heart, and we should pay attention to it. It reveals whether we're truly living to glorify Christ or whether we're really living in our own kingdom and protecting ourselves. We all feel the sting of that, all of us. You know that you're a sinner, again, and blind to sin in certain areas of your life, our tendency is to minimize or overlook sin that should be dealt with. So when God brings someone along to help us see what we otherwise don't see or don't want to see or see but don't want to deal with, we should receive it humbly. We should not be about the business of trying to protect ourselves, our reputation, or preserve the good opinion, have others preserve their good opinion of us. We should be ready to receive it. Listen to just a few passages of how God addresses this. In verse uh, uh, Proverbs 9, 8, the first part, he says, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. In verse 15, 12, he says, a scoffer does not love the one who reproves him. So when we are walking in a self-protecting way or a self-righteous way, what is the tendency? And we've seen this happen too, is to lash out, attack that person, be vindictive. They don't understand. Who are they to confront me? Look at their life. What a jerk. You know, whatever. 
That's, that can be a natural reaction, and we see that happen sometimes, right? It's defending self. It's like an animal that's been caught and trapped and cornered and then bears its teeth. Why? Because it's been caught. Because it's been caught, and it doesn't like that. Conversely, though, positively, if we are a wise person who fears God, though far from perfect, but that's the general attitude of our life, and we're seeking humility, and we're seeking to grow in holiness, then we actually will be thankful when somebody confronts us. Listen to Proverbs again, the second part of Proverbs 9.8. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. He will love you. You reprove somebody who's wise, and they will love you. They will say thank you. Thank you. I was going to let that go, or that could have gone, but you have helped me. You've helped my soul. Thank you. Proverbs 13.1, a wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Proverbs 25.12, like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. You will love that person who took the time and who took the effort and put themselves on the line to help you. And because of that, when we're walking rightly, we will receive rebuke and reproof ourselves, one, humbly, and then secondly, believe it or not, with gratitude. With gratitude. In reality, we should be very deeply thankful when we're reproved, especially when it's done rightly, but even if it's not done rightly, we still see God's hand and help in it. But especially when it's done rightly, especially when it's done in humility and, and a sincerity while somebody's coming to us because they really do care and we can see that in the way that they've done it. We should be very grateful to them. And let me give you at least three reasons. One is because it is an expression of love, humility, and listen, vulnerability from that brother or sister. They're putting themselves on the line. They're making themselves vulnerable. They're opening themselves up for you to attack them, for you to misunderstand them. And they're humbly coming to you and willing to take that risk on for your sake. They're not benefiting from it. They could easily look at, let it go, but they love you enough to come to you and to tell you that. It's easier to say nothing, and that's what we usually do, but to take risk is what love does. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. A friend, someone who cares for you. Psalm 141.5, let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is oil upon the head and do not let my head refuse it. So we should be thankful and respect that brother or sister who has come to us. Secondly, a second reason is because it's an expression of God's love to us through them. Remember when Nathan was sent to David? What if God never sent David or Nathan? David would have continued on hiding and in misery. He would have stayed in Psalm 32 for who knows how long. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I was miserable inside. And God put an end to his misery by sending Nathan to say, you are that man. And David repented right on the spot. Why? Because he was in sin. He was being disobedient. He was hiding his sin. But he really did want to honor God. And so when his sin was exposed, he immediately addressed it, immediately accepted the consequences. He did so publicly, and he no doubt thanked Nathan for it. Because it was an expression of God's love to David by sending Nathan. And so when God sends someone our way, it's actually an expression of God's love to us. It's an expression of God's fatherly care for us, his kindness to us. And so we should see not only that person who made the sacrifice, but we should see God's kindness behind that, God's love for us as our father. And thirdly, it means that it's God's means of restoring us to joy and blessing. Again, if that sin had never been confronted in David's life, what a miserable life. 
What a miserable life. But God, David was restored, brought to repentance and restored to joy. Restored to a faithful walk. Remember Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of salvation. And no doubt God did that. And we see that in the rest of his life. I have been often told in membership classes how important and thankful someone is or, and they desire to go through the process of formal membership because they feel protected. They want to know that they will be in a body where people will care for their soul. They want to know that they will be in fellowship and among other people. And they say that I want to know that if there's sin in my life, somebody's going to come to me and say, I see sin in your life. If they see error and strain down a deadly path, they want to know that somebody's going to love them enough to come alongside them and say, I see this error that you're going down. And I care for you. I don't want you to, I don't want you to do that. I've told uh, this many times as just one example in my own life. I... Uh, uh, the paper was going around during a seminary class. If you've heard it, just, you know, think of something else for a minute. Otherwise, uh, maybe it'll be helpful to someone else. But uh, there was a, we were supposed to have reading done before class, and the sheet was going around, and I realized I didn't read these pages, so I'm sitting in the back, and then I quickly pull out my book and start, you know, speed reading. You know, the pages are just flying like this. And uh, so that when it comes to me, I could, I could write my name on the list of having finished the homework assignment. So I did that, and there was another brother in class who saw me doing that, and then we took a break, and he pulls me over in the hallway, and uh, his, he says, you know, brother, I, I saw that you were, he's like, you know, we were supposed to have that done before class. And he says, I, hey, I, just, I just don't want the devil to get a hold of you like that. And of course, I'm like, oh, like, you know, that's humbling. So I went back in and I told my professor and, you know, they, he didn't care. He's like, yeah, okay, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but that wasn't really the point, was it? The point was he did that. Well, I got to tell you, I loved him. That endeared that brother to me so deeply. I appreciated him. I loved him. I was so thankful to him. And that's how it is many times when somebody comes because, it, you know, that stood with me, obviously, here all these years later. And so we should receive it with gratitude, with gratitude. And when we do and it happens that way, what does he say? You've won your brother. You've won your brother. And what a, what a picture of joy. What a picture of, of, of the, the fellowship that, that God delights in and that brings delight and joy to our heart. And, of course, the other part of that, which we'll mention next time, is that there is a spirit of forgiveness, especially if it's one where somebody has personally sinned against us. There's restoration. There's confession of sin. There's the extension of forgiveness. And there's full reconciliation in that relationship grounded in the gospel. There's the transaction of forgiveness that has taken place. And that's how we should live. And there's joy. You've restored them. You've restored them to joy. You've restored them to obedience. You've restored them to the fellowship. You've restored them to everything that will bring good in their life. And that's what we want to do. Uh, but it does take risk. And it does take faith in, in what God is doing in our life, in their life, and in the church. Well, we're going to wrap this up next week. But this is a great place to stop as we come to the table. Because the table is what? It's a picture of our unity in Christ. It's a picture of our, our being bound to Christ and in Christ being bound to one another by the Holy Spirit. That we're in this race together. We're in this together. And we all are pursuing the same goal. And our desire is to help one another to that goal in a way that we can trust that people will take an interest in our soul as we hopefully learn to take an interest in theirs for the glory of Christ and for our joy. Let's pray and then the men will come forward. Father, thank you for the gospel of grace, that we live in grace. But we realize grace and holiness go together. 
Grace goes with holiness and the fact that your grace required you to uphold your holy standard by putting your justice and laying it on the sun for all of those you would bring to him. But we also know that your grace is experienced in its fullness and delight when we walk in holiness and consistent with that grace, which not only forgives us from condemnation, but teaches us to be sanctified, to grow in holiness. And so help us to hold those two things in balance and to have a generosity toward one another that doesn't look at every little infraction, but when something does need to be addressed, that we would have the kind of love and the kind of courage and the sense of commitment to you that goes. And Lord, in as much as that happens in our body, may, may it be step one. May it be that immediate receiving. May it be the expression of forgiveness and joy and, and deepening our bonds of love. And may you use our time at the table uh, to accomplish those things in us and among us. We offer it to you. In Jesus' name, amen.